Hey, Scam. Thank you for coming. Today's episode is all about me. Because you've been asking a lot. It's fair, fair that you ask. Chances are, if you're here, it's not by happenstance. You've probably listened to me run my mouth on more than a few platforms. But you don't really know anything about me. Which is a bit strange, isn't it? I am unknown. I've been like an actor. I'm speaking about things that I am passionate about, that I love. But they've been ideas and concepts not necessarily expressed from the position of myself. But that's what makes them relevant to me. And I'm still learning how to be myself on camera on a recording like this. I think that I'm myself most of the time, but you overthink these things. And hence why I can't use a strict script because I'll get stuck in it. You just have to trust that you're going to say the right thing in the right moment because everything led up to that time anyway. Anyway, I digress. You have asked me who I am a fair few times. And... I've always found it very challenging to write about myself. What do I say? How do I categorize and summarize myself in a way that makes sense? Do I use accolades? Achievements? Do I say what I do? Because the doing of do is a thing separate from the you. The I. From the identity crisis unfolding barely two minutes into this podcast, I digress. Here's a brief story of my life, as told by the very subjective neural pathways threaded into my brain, my biological memories, the memories that exist in this organic meat sack. And I am the sentience, ideally, that is aware of that meat sack, but let's be honest, most of the time, it's very difficult to, to be present in a way that grants you universal perspective. It is a fleeting thing, if anything. So, I had a bit of an unconventional childhood. I think that's fair to say. Eclectic, maybe. Unique. It certainly was unique because it came from a couple of very unique people. When people say, why are you the way that you are? Why do aliens abduct children who don't eat their Brussels sprouts? Because my parents told me that. They told me a lot of things. They provided the foundation. And it was one built on security, security in oneself, perpetual curiosity, adventure, experience, growth, room for expansion without judgment, and the guidance to learn how to do dangerous things safely, which is certainly a spice to life, whether that be riding motorcycles and learning how to ski or taking a risk. Believing in yourself, building the tools that make that belief something that can be actually manifested as well. Because you can't tell people that they can do anything without giving them the tools to do anything. You have this great discrepancy. You guys can be anything when you grow up. Absolutely anything that you desire. As long as we have a, a reflective societal 
monetary value attached to it so that we can judge your value of character by the value in your bank account. But I digress again. I'm getting distracted. My parents, my dad is, uh, I wouldn't say quintessential hippie. No, he was a man that was born and raised in Southern California in the 70s, doing hectic 70s things, riding motorcycles, growing out their hair, rebelling against the man. But he didn't like the city. It wasn't him. Too conventional, too much concrete. Not enough dirt beneath your feet. And so as soon as he had the opportunity to leave, he did. Picked up photography and traveled all through India, Middle East. Did some things that you honestly can't really do anymore. The world has changed since then. He did things that he never even told me about. His buddies would tell me about it when they'd come to town. Oh, your dad is a wild man. And they would tell me more. And then I'd say, I wish, wish you hadn't told me that yet. I think I'm too young for that. And that's a thing that I've definitely seen him do. When a wild man has a child, it can go a couple of different directions. But one of those directions is that that wild man wants to put things in place so that his child is not as wild. But they relent eventually. Not relent. They become wise enough to be able to guide things safely. You don't want to encourage your children to do things that you did. That makes sense to you. You want to keep them safe. But one thing that uh, Merrick always had a passion for is just being outside, being in it, being among it. If there's anything you can say about Merrick, you can say a lot. He knows how to live. Always has. He's paid the price. He's got three hip replacements. They call him the Tin Man. I've heard his, his hip replacements squeak before, but I know that he wouldn't regret a single day of it. So Merrick came back from his adventures overseas, got dengue fever, almost died a few times. His parents thought he did die, but he made his way back, and as soon as he did, he booked it into the mountains. He wanted to be in the woods, in the snow, and everything a mountain has that man became a part of. It's a professional telemark skier, mountaineer, mountain biker, fly fishing guide, whitewater rafting guide, traveling through the Grand Canyon, doing multi-day trips, being amongst it. And my mum, she's from Australia. Born and raised in Camberwell in Melbourne. My mum is where I get a lot of it from. The uh, chaos, so to speak. The creativity that comes with that and the double-edged sword that is ADHD. She's not formally diagnosed, but we all know what's up. She puts color into the world. She is an artist, an expressionist, and someone that's always fostered that in me, which is a, uh, a challenging and worthy thing to be doing, giving your children the, the power of expression, being able to tune into who you are and express that in a way that Makes you feel good, makes you feel alive. And mom, when she was, uh, she's the youngest of four very formidable sisters. Speaking about you, Sally. But mom, she had about 27 and she wanted to get out. Wanted to see the world, do the unconventional thing, go against the grain, which she did. 
got in a cargo ship and traveled to the States. I think the journey was about six months, six months at sea. Young woman, some very persistent sailors. She figured it out, landed in Florida, drove across the country, picking up jobs wherever she went, landed in California as a painter, and she traveled up to Idaho, Sun Valley. She was a waitress at the time, and that is where she met my father. And when a man and a woman love each other very much, they escape the hustle and bustle of the mountain town of Sun Valley and go to a smaller town, Red Lodge, the base of the Beartooth Mountains, and that's where they decided to set up their life. Dad opened a whitewater rafting company, Adventure Whitewater, going into 32 years Strong, perfect safety record, I might add. I'll be back there guiding this summer. She come and say hi. Mum opened boomerang beads. And mum being a purveyor of the eclectic and trader of the exotic, used boomerang beads to purvey the eclectic and trade the exotic. It was a very creative shop creative existence so our summers were spent whitewater rafting guiding sitting on the river and our winters were spent skiing and then at a very early age my uh, parents decided that they would rather travel than stay in school and we traveled we lived in belize traveled around guatemala the cook islands fiji australia indonesia they uh, not only didn't let children get in the way of their traveling, they made it our life. I don't think I had a full year of school from first grade to 12th grade. Every year I was gone for months at a time. And that's the most incredible thing you can do for a child. But it was also challenging. When you're young and you're trying to develop friendships, the embers of a youthful companionship need more consistent stoking that of a friendship you make later. We have shorter attention spans when we're children. I mean, they're pretty short now, but the depth is, is something that's hard to sustain. And so there was a persistent feeling of, of being out of place that I think led to, to strengths in the end because you have to f figure out who you are. You don't have the friendship groups that really shape that identity. And you, you do, but they're, they're brief. When we moved to Australia, 2007, we went back and forth for the next 11 years or so. And then uh, there's a flu, a global one. It, it um, interrupted things for a little while. I haven't been back in four years. And in that time, I have I've put the work in. Lucky enough to have some very hype, healthy hyperfixations. And they didn't come from nowhere. I, been surrounded by people that would show me things. My cousin Byron, he showed me my first podcast. Joe Rogan and Graham Hancock discussing ancient civilizations. I want to say this was 2013, maybe 2014. Blew my mind. Talking about the ancient lost city of Gobekli Tepe that was likely a victim of an asteroid impact 12 and a half thousand years ago that wiped out all the megafauna in the United States area and changed the world forever, plunged us into a mini ice age and potentially wiped out massive swaths of human civilization that we have never recovered. 
except for Gobekli Tepe. Hearing something like that when you're young that confirms and shows you that there is a world, was a world, has always been a world so much greater than not only your own individual life, but everything you know about life beyond that. I was thinking about the ancient Egyptians being old, but this city's 12 and a half thousand years, stated. Advanced architecture and civil engineering and things that reframe that paradigm, expand it, blow it open. And from there, I mean, that's, that's the gates of curiosity. And if you follow your enthusiasm, curiosity, wherever it goes, you end up with a, in many cases, strange collection of little tidbits of knowledge that frame who you are as a human being. Growing up in Montana, very religious town, we had 12 bars and nine churches. And I was one of the only kids that wasn't religious. Myself, Rain, and Moritz. But beyond that, everybody was religious. And it was very strange going over to, to their houses and saying grace and doing things that we just didn't do at home. They would ask me about what I thought about God, what I believed in, what heaven was. And because my parents told me tidbits of different cultures and religions, I just had this weird amalgamation in my head, something to do with a karmic retribution and their resurgence into another life, depending on if you are a good person or a bad person. It made sense. It made sense that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Um, but this would shock the Christians kind of heathen are they raising in the rosin house? A gentle heathen, but a heathen nonetheless. And then when we moved to Australia, went to a religious school for a couple of years, did not vibe with that. I tried, but I couldn't wear a suit and tie. It really grounded my gears as a youngin. Then I went to public school, had a great time there. But didn't know what the hell I was doing with my life. Still don't, but I'm having a good time. I was going to do nursing. I was going to do architecture first, which is a, an absurd thought because my, I'm not trying to say a, a negative narrative right here, a, a limiting, limiting thought, but I could not have been an architect. They can... It's the ultimate thing of being able to manifest a thought into something that is mathematically sound, a structure that provides a purpose, expression in its own way. But I'm a little bit more chaotic than that, as judged by this podcast. But I didn't know what to do. And so I went to a career advisor and she said, you can do psychology. And I said, that's great, but how, how long does that take? It's four years and then a couple of years doing a master's degree which coming out of high school, that's, that's another six years. No, I didn't think that was going to work out, but nursing made sense because I thought that I could combine nursing with all of my other loves. Cause I've always had a, a habit of commoditizing my passions. Started playing music when I was young and roam around doing gigs and bowing heads, picked up photography, fell in love with that, became my main side hustle. Shop started doing clients in 12th grade and kept using that to pay my way through uni. 
So I thought nursing is a good option. I can travel on it. I can become maybe a traveling expedition photographer nurse. And I'm not sure if I've given up on that idea as of yet, but I'd rather go on the expeditions now. And while I was at uni, I got a job as a, a nurse assistant at a nursing home, residential aged care. I had a lot of friends when I worked in aged care. Statistically, they're probably dead now. And that's okay because that's the, the nature of the universe. And I hope that I can take the stories and the lessons and some of the wisdom that they shared with me then and carry it on in my life and one day pass it on to the ear of a, a young and looking for advice before I float into oblivion. I digress. While I was studying nursing, I quickly saw that it wasn't necessarily the ideology, the structure that I wanted because I got frustrated at pharmaceuticals. I got frustrated with the, the lack of personalization within healthcare. We were always being taught to tailor healthcare to the individual. It's got to be wrapped around their needs and goals. But then they'd come in a hospital and they all get the same medication and the same treatment, uh, prescribe something potentially for life and sent on their way without any of the real structure or tools they need to implement lasting change, which is change that has to come from the self. Then I got into plant medicines at that same time. Always had a relationship with cannabis since I dabbled at 15, liked it at 16, and then on and off since then. So oh, a fair while. Longer than is good for the developing brain. And I say that being a cannabis nurse educator, a specialist in this plant. But I saw what potential there was in this plant in all plant medicines. And so I decided while I was still in my nursing school to direct my attention to studying plant medicine on the side. So I scraped by in uni, did well on my placements, and then devoted the rest of my attention to cannabis because I wanted a job in this space. And I had a job lined up for a regular nursing job, a graduate position, which is what they do in Australia. Your final year is supposed to be your graduate year in a hospital where you consolidate all of your skills and come together as a nurse. It is the thing to do. And I was told I was crazy for nothing about not doing it. But I had a, I had a mission. I didn't know how I was going to get a cannabis job because I wasn't experienced enough as a nurse to really make my way in there on that regard. I didn't have enough money to make my own or the experience nowhere near, uh, but I did have my time and my attention. And so I thought, well, I will bring them to me. So I learned all I could. And then I reached out to a few of the, I consider some of the great minds in cannabis, Dr. Ethan Russo. And I asked him on LinkedIn if he would like to come on my podcast. And he very promptly said yes. And then I had to figure out how to make a podcast. Download all the programs, um, start recording myself, start editing, start trying to figure out how to do the flow of this, start learning how to record things and this is where all the kind of the photography stuff came in. And so what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at here is that do whatever you are passionate in and you will pick up specific knowledge along the way. Specific knowledge is knowledge that can't be easily trained or automated. It's specific knowledge is something that you have to find and it's found by pursuing your 
own organic curiosity and interests, wherever that may lead you. Because even if you think it's on a completely divergent path and everything that you've walked up until thus now has been a waste of time, everything you learn along the way is relevant if you have the mindset that everything is relevant to everything. Whether you're bussing tables or working at a cafe, whether you're interning at a, a journalism agency or whether you are learning how to be a painter and a plasterer, everything that you learn along the way, how you deal with people, how things go together, how things work, how a business operates, how to see opportunity and connect the dots. And if you follow your organic curiosity, you end up being able to connect dots that people don't see because nobody's you. Nobody's had your curiosity. Nobody's done things the way that you do. And when you put it together, nobody will be able to do it the way like you do. It removes the competition from the world because nobody can compete to be you. The key here is to not find the one thing that gives you all of the purpose. Maybe there is a, a theme to that thing, but to allow yourself to explore things in a way that you find something that you can work towards that, that ikigai, that something that you love, something that you're good at, something that the world can pay you for and something that the people need, then you can put it together in a way that only you can do. And then you become the best in the world at what you do. And you keep refining what you do until that's true. While I was there, while I was doing my podcast, I diced up some clips and I put it on LinkedIn and they reached out to me and then I had to figure out how to be a cannabis nurse and I had to study more and I had to learn more and I had to go well outside my comfort zone. And that's what you have to do. You have to take the leap. You also have to be diligent, but being diligent is far easier when you're pursuing your organic interest because when you do that, it will look like work to other people and it will look like play to you. It will feel like play to you. Everybody else is impressed. How did you learn all of this stuff? It's easy when you want to. It's harder not to. You have to act on good impulses as well. Write lists of things that you want to look at. Just absorb everything that you can. Start a book. If you don't like it, if you don't want to finish it, don't. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. This is all you. I'm a believer in using it all. And some people would say that I, I bastardize philosophy, and I do. I just make it relevant to me, because that's what all of this is about. The subjectivity of the world is something to be taken advantage of. Subjectivity of your world is how we become who we are. All right, so I think that we're going to go into some questions now. We'll see how I go. It's, it's late. But I need to get this out. So, Kenzie Drolshagen asks, what has been your personal journey with cannabis? Well, I tried it when I was maybe 15. It didn't work the first few times. And then maybe when I was 16, I, I was homesick, sick. And I had some, uh, some cannabis. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it right this time. I'm really going to go for it because I'm just immune so far. I just must have some weird, weird physiology. Um, and so I made a really elaborate uh, water pipe 
and then I took a, a hose and I then put a socket in it and then I put some foil in that and poked little holes in it and I ripped that thing through and I thought I was going to die. I was on the verge of calling the ambulance for maybe 30 minutes. I don't know, time lost its, its meaning. I thought I'm the first person in the world that's going to have an allergic reaction to cannabis and I'm going to die. And then my, my heart calmed down and I took a warm shower. I thought this is, this is going to be all right. And at first it was novelty. It's a new way of feeling things, new way of looking at the world, new way of expanding and indulging your curiosity. The mundane becomes interesting, not because you're stooped to a certain level, but because you're seeing things around you that you didn't see before. It's that perspective. Stop and take a look at the caterpillar. Or you would look up at the stars and really question it, really look in there and wonder what it's about. And it does come down to your intention, but you don't often don't know your intention until you're older, until you've enough experience to know what isn't your intention. My intention has never been to get high and that be the experience. It's always been a, something that enhances or modulates an experience that I already wanted to do. So I'd use cannabis and write music, write, run, exercise, go to the gym, go surfing, go ride my bike, socialize in small group settings because too many people is, uh, I know what I like. So cannabis for me has been a significant tool. I mean, not only has it been something I've built a career on now, it's something that I so value terms of introspection and reflection. THC-induced anxiety is not something to be scared of. Quite often it's showing you something that you need to have been looking at. Like we go through life with blinders up, like a, like a horse on a carriage. And we've got to see directly in front of us because we've got shit to do. We've got lives to lead. We can't deal with all this peripheral stuff. And then the THC comes in and those blinders drop. And everything floats in and you have no choice but to deal with it. You have no choice but to confront what comes to the surface. But one of the things about THC is that it can modulate your emotional response to the things that come to the surface. Things like pain, trauma, memories, perceptions of self. That thought comes up and because your mind has been put into a different perspective, you don't have the same response to it. You can reflect and introspect in a way that you can utilize some of the most important decisions I've had of in using cannabis realizations that I can then action. And because THC, especially in the dose that I've always used it pretty small, leaves you with a coherency of thought. You can actually translate that into usable experiences, actionable things, as opposed to other, um, maybe more psychedelic hallucinogenic intense drugs where sometimes you come away with more abstract notions and ideas rather than the concrete nature that THC can provide. And then you have this massive boost of enhancing chemicals, neuroplasticity enhancing chemicals, which gives you this greater access between your conscious and your subconscious mind. It's a tool that you can use to build trust with oneself. Great tool for meditation. It's a great tool for stress relief and pain, but moderation is key with everything. And for many people, it's a... It's a very fickle mistress. It's a very challenging thing to live with and live without. But this is the content for another podcast entirely.
we'll get to that. Jono Nord asks, how does one navigate loneliness? Immerse, engage, direction, connection. Immerse yourself in whatever is in front of you at any given moment. Try and be in a, a fully engaged in what is around you at any given time. And if you don't like what you're engaged in, then do something more engaging. The best way to navigate loneliness is to learn how to love it. Because the person that loves loneliness will never be alone. Of course, everybody gets lonely. I love being alone. But I get lonely. But that's just a, uh, a manifestation of a feeling that is translated into a thought. And that feeling is you know, something within you that needs safety and protection. It, it wants something. So when you feel lonely, ask your body, ask yourself, what is it that I can do to make you safe? What is it that you, that you need? Try and tune into that. Meditate more. Really become in touch, aligned with the omnipresent, very difficult to tap into awareness, source, divine, highest self, whatever you might want to fill that gap with. Realize that you're never alone because you are what is. But then, yeah, do fun things. Do fun things for yourself because if you can do fun things for yourself and you enjoy your own company, you become something that attracts what you want anyway because if you are yearning for connection from the position of loneliness, then you add a layer of expectation on top of that, which expectation, that's how it leads to disappointment and it's how it leads to feeling the established within relationships, one-sided that's difficult. You don't want a one-sided relationship. So to be okay with being lonely, learn to be in love with being alone. Who you are, what you do. At vadim.vnc asks, how can I work on my mental strength? Sometimes I need to wake up, but I keep sleeping. Have a reason and stop making it so hard before you make it easy. Gotta have, gotta have a reason to get up or else you won't, you won't get up. And I can't tell you what that reason is because I'm not you. Something that sparks joy, something that makes you feel uncomfortable, but commit 10 minutes earlier, 15 minutes earlier. Easy changes for big results. At Gabby.A asks, why do some people want to be alone when everything is perfect? Maybe everything's perfect for them when they're alone. It's maybe a matter of how people get their energy introverts get their energy from being alone and then they can spend it in any way that they choose and extroverts get their energy more so from being around other people so maybe the person in question just needs to uh, rejuvenate replenish and recalibrate that energy that solitude and stillness brings i wouldn't take it personally we all got to do what we got to do but communication is key ask them from a position of curiosity and, and true interest, rather than hurt, if you can separate your ego from it. At Emelina Love asks, living a life of Zen the best we can takes practice. What elements do you struggle with? Everyone. I'm not a Zen master. Oh, balance is a difficult thing to strike for me because I seem to thrive in 
The chaos. Uh, that's what it's about. Being able to cultivate peace within the chaos. And I struggle with, uh, with setting boundaries and over committing and, uh, expecting too much of myself and forcing things that should be rested through. I'm pretty good with meditation and getting in touch with myself, but I don't follow through with the self-care. A lot of the time you have all the realizations, all of the awareness of what should be changed, but um, again, it's, that, it's the habits as well. I haven't built enough habits that, uh, that automate self-care in a tangible way, a meaningful way. Now, things like rest. Rest isn't just sleeping isn't having a weekend home on the couch. Rest should be active, can be active. There are, there are things that uh, make it hard to find a cruising altitude in my mind, but I'm getting better at finding that, uh, that middle ground and identifying when I have things like burnout and putting the correct things in place to not only prevent that, but to uh, nourish my way through that. Quite often doing that nourishing is, is doing something that you don't want to do. The obstacle is away, and we are generally that obstacle. I'm pretty good at the path of neutrality, not assigning emotional value to things that I don't deem worthy of. But living a life of Zen is, is difficult when trying to balance that with ambition as well. I remember when I first started meditating, my ambition took a hit. I started getting to that place where materialism just ceases to exist ceases to be something that is emotionally and personally relevant to myself and my ego. And then I had a little moment of like, well, what the fuck am I working for? Why am I working so hard? Why am I doing 60 hour weeks? But then I came through and found my intention. The ambition was, was actually strengthened. I had to remove the old and inject the new and the new was intention. And that intention brought with it a clarity. But it's a, it's a daily process. Living a life of Zen, like any other life, requires daily decisions and consistent actions to follow up with those decisions. And you do begin to automate things that might right now seem absolutely out of the realm of possibility. Sad Trip 999 asks, how old were you when you started to dig deep in life? A couple of key moments come to mind. Um, when I was like six or seven. I stared in a mirror long enough to where I completely disassociated. And I was like, who was that? That's not me. That's not me. That is not me. And then I snapped back into being me. And that, that happened a few more times. And that, um, that led to not never concern, curiosity. And then forget. You just forget because you go on with your life. You go play with your friends. The other thing was uh, aliens when I was... Uh, too young, five, six, I begged my dad to watch Signs. Uh, Mel Gibson, M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong. And me and my buddy both watched Signs, Quentin. And we were neighbors, best friends. And it warped us. It did something to us that uh, was irreparable in many ways. Um, we just manifested borderline psychosis for each other with our fevered alien dreams. After watching signs, I'm in the middle of the movie. I said, turn it off, dad, please turn it off. And he said, you wanted to watch this. I was like, 
all right, I'm doing that. And then my little sister, two years younger than me, she's just giggling next to me because she's just built with different components. I didn't even mention my sister. Oh my goodness, Chloe, I'm so sorry. My sister is the most capable person I know. She is the most diligent person I know. She has a type of discipline that almost seems alien to me. And I love her more than anything. She is my best friend, my fiercest advocate, and my harshest critic. Oh my goodness. She can, uh, yeah, she can bring, bring an ego to its knees, lickety-split, which is a good thing. Good thing to have around you. Um, she's sometimes gets too stressed to realize how capable, intelligent she is. She'll always be able to fall back on that. But when I started to dig deep in life, it was probably just being scared by aliens. And looking up at the stars, not from a perspective of just curiosity, but holy shit, there's something out there that nobody understands. And it's coming from me in my bunk bed tonight. Outdoors, Lee asks, does smoking weed prevent you from being the best version of yourself? It can. Kind of depends on what your intention is. It's your intention to mask, suppress, create an experience to take you out of the experience that you're in, or is it a tool that you use deliberately to enhance the experience, to modulate the experience, to alter perspective, to grow as a person? Is your intention to grow and learn and expand and deal with the discomfort that can come along with that? Or is your intention to numb things and sit in the couch and watch Netflix? Not that that's bad. Just moderation, balance. So, yeah, there's no, there's no thing, no drug, no action, or maybe some actions that are inherently moral. Do we assign a moral quality to, to things like drugs? That's really a, an aspect of the war on drugs, is that in order to make people scared of them, we had to associate a fear and immorality to it so that not only would we judge the drug, we would judge the user of that drug. Intention, it all comes down to education and intention. If somebody doesn't have the tools, if they've never used to learn to use a drug like cannabis, then they got some figuring out to do. We have you know, standard drinks of alcohol on the side of a can in a bottle. Let's you know that, all right, four beers is my limit, but with cannabis, it's nothing like that. It's a stab in the dark. But thankfully, it's a very intuitive plant, and it, if you surrender to it, can lead you places that you uh, will grow through. I'm going to do one more question and then wrap it up. This is a long podcast. Holy shit. I wonder, is anybody still here? I have stuttered a lot. It's been a massive day. I did 20-something patient consults. It's a lot of screen time, a lot of time sitting behind a computer, giving out energy, but I wanted to get this podcast out. And I hope that it's okay. I hope that somebody's here with me. Thank you. Alex Gilden asks, I'd love to know your hypothesis about this. What is the evolutionary advantage to seeing beauty in things that don't advance us as a species, like rainbows, the moon, or even music? Do you think we are missing out on an entire way of seeing the world and experiencing life by lacking the genetic equipment that of being like plants, animals, whales, dolphins, stingrays, mantis, shrimps, eels, butterflies, falcons, cheetahs, giraffes, etc.? Meaning, is there more that we could learn about the world, nature, life, 
only by being a whale or a plant? Do we only hear what we want to hear and see what we've always seen? What a beautiful question. Thank you, Alex. We always hear what we want to hear and see what we've always seen because we don't see the world as it is, but as we are. And when we look at a, something like art, something that we define as beautiful, very strange because, especially within nature, the organic, raw beauty of nature, down to its innate symmetry and its mathematical composition, its repeating of patterns. We see nature and we see nature's beauty as something that is separate to us, something that is more pure, something that we, is, is foreign. When we look upon it, we don't recognize ourselves in it, and that prompts curiosity. And that curiosity, I would say, is an evolutionary advantage. Because we see beauty in things that we want to then understand. We've gone to the moon. We know what a rainbow is. We play music, and it has progressed humankind. It's, a, it's an undercurrent that drives us forward. The creation of beauty, the manifestation of perfect, and the achievement of it in many cases. I think that we're missing out on a way of seeing the world, not because we aren't whales, but because we consider ourselves as separate to whales. We don't understand butterflies because we consider them separate, much like you consider your heart a separate thing to yourself. You don't say, I beat my heart. You say, my heart beats as if it's this thing completely out of your control, completely out of your scope of being. What we are is the manifestation of all of this. We are the space in which it all occurs. And when we create and pursue and manifest art, beauty, when we try to understand it, we expand the confines of, of awareness's awareness of itself. Is that possible? That's a paradox. There's more to learn about the world always. Some of that can be done by sitting still and taking a deep breath. Some of that can be done by diving with whales. Some of it can be done by realizing that you are the beauty and the perfection of nature, of this universe, and of this world. By creating beauty, you become the beauty. You see what you are. If you see beauty, you know what you are. Thanks for coming. I'll talk to you guys soon. She's not a lesbian for peace. She turned pisbian. Push P. Push P. I'm capital P. I write you president. Count president. Push P. Portuguese on her knees. Mopping down a P. She let me squeeze. Then she leave. Cause she keep P. Private speak, privacy, bitch, I'm pushing P. Purple paint, pussy paint, bitch, I'm pushing P. Push P, I'm pushing P. Purple.